0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us today right here on Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Neufeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, with a message entitled, The Final Defeat of Satan. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld
1: now. Do you remember the account of the rich man and Lazarus? It's a story that Jesus once told in which a rich man died and went to Hades and a poor man died and was comforted at Abraham's side. And eventually in torment, the rich man cried out that Lazarus should be sent his brothers to warn them about what's coming after death. But Abraham answers, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe the scripture, they also won't believe when someone rises from the dead. I wonder if you think that's right. You are no doubt aware of some of the arguments put forward by the world's leading atheists. Bertrand Russell once said, if God exists and I meet him, I will shake a cancerous bone in his face and demand why. It's called the the problem of evil. And of course, others argue that science has disproved the need for God. Whether it's the theory of evolution that everything exists due to random chance and natural selection, or the impossibility of miracles, science, at least some suggest, has replaced the need for God. And then there are those who argue that the idea of God is meaningless. And then those who argue that belief in God is only wish fulfillment. And then there are the Marxists who argue that God is simply a tool of the rich and powerful to keep the rest of us in line. Well, I suspect that most of you have heard all of these arguments many times before. You know, some time ago, an American atheist organization placed a large digital display at a prominent location in New York. It said, who needs Christ? And then it answered, nobody. See, I'm reminded of the words of George Bernard Shaw, who, by the way, was by no means a Christian. But he said, nobody talks so constantly about God as those who insist there is no God. And there it is. This fixation on God is what all atheists are forever condemned to. It is said that near the end of his life, Jean-Paul Sartre, famous French atheist, told his friend Pierre Victor, I do not feel that I am a product of chance, a speck of dust in the universe, but someone who was expected, prepared, and prefigured, and to which a longtime friend, Simone de Beauvoir, immediately responded, calling Sartre a senile turncoat. There it is. Atheists can't help themselves. They talk of God constantly. And if any one of them is in danger of turning towards God, well, they heap scorn on them, letting everyone know this is not acceptable. And all of that illustrates Romans 1.18, which says that men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. That is, it was never a lack of evidence. It was always the unwelcome nature of the evidence. You know, atheists seem to prove that almost every day. And so with Paul's statement in Romans 1.18 of suppressing the truth and Jesus teaching that if they will not listen to the Scriptures, they will not believe if someone rises from the dead. Well, with that, we come to Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. It says, And when the thousand years are ended, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, in this passage, we come now to the end of the millennium. You're going to remember that we have said that both the First Testament and the New Testament speak of a time which is markedly different from the age in which we are now living, and as well, it can't take place in the new heavens and the new earth. You know That time period is defined in our passage as the 1,000-year reign of Christ, or it's also been called the millennium. We also said that during this time, the saints would receive resurrection bodies and that they would rule with Christ on earth. And Daniel, the prophet said words very much like that in Daniel 7, verse 22. He said, judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So that line corresponds perfectly with Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. So we've been saying that the question of whether the number 1,000 is to be taken literally or whether it's a symbolic number about a long period of time, well, while that's an interesting question, it doesn't change the meaning of the passage even slightly. Christ will reign the earth for a long time, and during this time, Satan will be bound and prevented from deceiving the nations. The nations will during this time be ruled by Christ and will be prevented from rebelling. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, as we listen to this passage, is going to make it clear that the passage can't be speaking about the present era, nor can it be speaking about the new heavens and the new earth. So let's listen in while Micah shares of a time yet to come. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away." And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Now, if you're listening closely as I read, you will have noticed that so much of what Micah describes can't happen in the new heavens and the new earth. The idea of judging disputes between strong people of nations that are ignorant of God, flowing to Jerusalem to be instructed in the way of God. Well, this is the wonder of the millennium, which Christ reigns physically in Jerusalem. And of course, this will be a time in which there will be no shortage of evidence for the truth of the gospel. But as verse 7 of Revelation 20 tells us, that at the end of the 1,000 years, Satan will be released from his prison. So look again at verse 8. It tells of Satan and it says, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, Gog and Magog are the names of nations that are actually mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, and we're going to do well here to consider what he has to say about them. Indeed, Ezekiel chapters 36 through to 38 really describes exactly what Revelation is saying. Indeed, it would be accurate to say that an understanding of Revelation 20 verse 8 depends on knowing something about those chapters in Ezekiel. So let's start with Ezekiel 36 verses 24 to 29. The passage is speaking about Israel. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. Now, at first, we might think that this passage speaks of Israel, you know, coming back to the promised land after the Babylonian captivity. But that can't be because when one goes to chapter 37, we see that in this time, God will not only cleanse the land of sin, but that he will combine the tribes of Joseph or of Ephraim with the tribe of Judah. Israel and Judah will be one again. Now consider Ezekiel 37, verse 22. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And then verse 24 says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall be one shepherd. Well, that's a reference to the Messiah who will rule over Israel and over the whole world. So suffice it to say that this has never happened. Not when Israel came back from Babylon, and certainly not in 1948, when the Jews returned back to Israel after you know, a 2,000-year absence. Truth be told, the Ezekiel prophecy has, up till now, never been fulfilled.
2: Sarah wrote, I have been saved for over 50 years. Was just a little girl, in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Sarah, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Ezekiel tells of a time when the dwelling place of the Messiah will be among the reunited people of Israel and then Israel is cleansed and the nations, seeing this, will seek after Israel's God. See, what Ezekiel is describing has never occurred, although the Bible makes it plain that it will happen in the last days. And it seems therefore fitting at this time to answer a question that Christians often struggle to answer. So many promises are made to Israel in the Old Testament that have, up till now, been unfulfilled. Are they to be fulfilled in the millennium? Well, in order to answer that, let me take you to Paul's words in Romans 11. There Paul speaks of what has happened because of Israel's fall. And in in verse 11 of that chapter, he makes the case that in his words, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now that's demonstrably true. You know, when the early church was persecuted in Jerusalem, The apostles were forced out of Israel, sharing the good news with the Gentiles. And wherever Paul went on any of his missionary journeys, he went first to the synagogues, where frequently he was expelled, and that forced him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. See, there's no doubt then that Israel's rejection of the gospel brought the gospel to the Gentile world. Now, in Romans 11, Paul then takes that even one step further Asking us to think of God's sovereignty in that turn of events. See, Paul acknowledges that the natural branches of the tree were broken off so that the wild olive branches could be grafted in. But then he goes on to say, God has the power to graft the natural branches back into the tree. And then Paul says that in these matters, there's a mystery. The partial hardening has come on Israel until, he says, the full number of the Gentiles come in, and then, through this, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. How so? Well, here Paul says that the deliverer will come. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That means in the future, the Messiah will end the season of Israel's partial hardening, and then the deliverer will come and take away Israel's sin. But how and when? And even though Paul doesn't explain how it's going to be done, we are well served to remember the words of Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10, that when the Messiah returns to Jerusalem, Zechariah says of Israel, that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly as one weeps over a firstborn. You know, I understand these passages to say that when Christ returns, when he transforms the body of his saints into their resurrection bodies, that Israel is going to see this, him whom they have pierced, and they're gonna rush to their Messiah. And in that day, as Ezekiel had foreseen, he will cleanse their land and pour out upon them a spirit of grace. So my understanding of Israel's role in the last days is that I believe that during the millennium, the Messiah is not only the world's Messiah, but he is, as the First Testament foresaw, Israel's Messiah. And in the days of the millennium, his chosen people will remain loyal to him even while other nations murmur and complain. And so, as Paul has said, God will graft his people in again. I think he's going to do that in the millennium. And even though I pray for Israel today, I don't actually think the Jewish people will return to their Messiah in full until they see Christ coming in great glory. Now, let's get back to what the prophet Ezekiel said. After the Messiah cleanses the land and after he pours his spirit on his people, as the people of Israel are born again, Ezekiel then takes us to the end of this long period of the Messiah's reign over Israel, and the long period of peace comes to an end. I'm reading now Ezekiel 38, verses 1 to 4. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out in all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. And then later in that same chapter, in verse 18, it says, But on that day, The day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. And then with the utter defeat of Gog, verse 23 says, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Now, reading those verses from Ezekiel reminds us of Revelation 20, verse 8. Satan comes out of his pit. He deceives the nations from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, says John and he gathers them for battle, and their number is like the sand on the shore. So we need to use a little sanctified imagination here. God's chosen saints are ruling and reigning with Christ, and Israel, who is saved during the millennium, have become fiercely loyal to their God and his Messiah, Jesus, the Son of David. And furthermore, many among the nations journey to Israel, and they say, teach me the ways of your God. But among the nations, there is always this underlying seething rebellion against the one who rules them with a rod of iron. And that, of course, brings us back to Jesus' words that if they don't believe the Scripture, they would not believe if someone rises from the dead. You see, it's not a lack of evidence that leaves men and women in rebellion. It's hatred of the ways of God. And so when in the sovereignty of God, Satan is released from his prison. The nations that hate the one who rules from Jerusalem, finally, they have their strong champion back, and they join hands, and at once, they cast off the reign of God. So, let's go to verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now, that word for camp, well, actually, it can also be translated as a military installation, but in this case, it's pictured as the capital city of the saints. It's, you know The saints are the resurrected believers of Jesus, and so the city is Jerusalem. But if we think of it, this attack on Jerusalem is a fool's errand, for how can they dethrone either the Messiah or his saints, to whom he has given resurrection bodies so that they cannot die? And so it seems that this rebellion is short-lived indeed, and with that we come to verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So when we think of the lake of fire, we're well served to remember the words found in Matthew 25 verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, in essence, people go to hell for their preference of Satan over Christ. And when you think about it, that is the story of the Bible, from first to last. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, the serpent came to the woman and invited her to eat from the tree that was forbidden. And she responds by saying, you know, I won't eat, for the day that I eat of that, I'm going to die. But the serpent says to her, you will surely not die. And in that moment, both Adam and Eve have made a choice. They choose to believe the word of Satan over the word of God. In essence, all human beings live by faith. We will trust the word of our Creator, or we will trust the word of the one who rebels against our Creator. It was never a matter of lack of evidence. It was always a matter of what resonates with our fallen soul. So before we leave this passage and its many mysteries, we we should not fail to describe hell for what it truly is. Our passage says that it is the place of torment that goes on forever and ever. Did you know that later on when we come to Revelation 22, verse 5, we learn that the place where our Lord, our God is, is the place of light, and the saints will reign with him there forever and ever. So notice that the words for the lake of fire are forever and ever, and the very same words are used for the new heavens and the new earth, forever and ever. There are those who argue that hell does not have an endless duration. They either argue for the extinction of the poor souls in the lake of fire or... Possibly, some argue for the rehabilitation of the souls in hell. But if the lake of fire is limited in duration, then heaven, by necessity, must also be limited. For the same words, forever and ever, are said of both places. See, you can't take it both ways. Either forever and ever is literal or it's not. And since we know that the promises of God are eternal promises, we are left with no other conclusion other than this that heaven or hell, either one, are the eternal abodes of all human beings. We'll either spend eternity with Christ or eternity with Satan and the Antichrist in the lake of fire. And so we come again with what Paul says in Romans 1.18. The great problem with the human race is that we suppress what is plainly before us. Story of the millennium tells us of the boundless mercy of God, who in spite of human sin continues to be patient with us until his patience is exhausted. Therefore, come to him and repent, and you will find he has mercy.
0: John, I'm not certain in this day and age, but you know, in our desire to be compassionate and gracious and, and those types of things, you know we, we tend to think that, Well, hell certainly can't be eternal. I know it speaks that type of language, but it can't certainly be true.
1: Yeah, Ben, that's such an important question because uh, if hell is not eternal, I mean, obviously, I've already made the point that then heaven can't be eternal as well because the same words are used of both dwelling places. Having said that now, I'll add one more thing. If hell is not eternal, then it must be possible to pay off our sin debt there. That is, somehow we must be able to do it so that finally we'll say, okay, now I have done it. Um, That would mean, of course, that Christ's death is not uh, necessary because there's another way to pay off your sin debt. Again, it's a problem.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 4, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Dr. Newfeld wrote, there is a line near the end of the book of Revelation that sounds altogether intriguing. Revelation 21:5 says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. All things. What can that mean? Well, according to the book of Revelation, this present world will die. Now that's not just a theological statement, it's a statement meant to bring comfort to suffering Christians. This month, Dr. Neufeld presents the final volume of his study on the book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. Focusing on the final five chapters, you'll be uniquely engaged and encouraged to discover the incredible plan God has for eternity. And for this month only, we want to make the final volume available to you for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for $75. Both offers include shipping and taxes. So call today for The Triumph of the Lamb at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.